Father, I thank you that you are great and you are mighty. You are magnificent. I ask, Father God, that you would fill us to overflowing this morning. Holy Spirit, stir us up. Teach us, instruct us, and guide us. That everywhere we go in the coming days, we would overflow with the greatness of our God, our Savior, the creator of the universe. I ask, Father God, that as we excuse our children to go downstairs, that they also would be filled to overflowing with the goodness of who you are. That they would be filled with your word. That they would see and sense inside of them the the greatness of the kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Be with the teachers and the helpers. Give them a special anointing to be able to pass on the truth to the next generation. And I ask, Father God, that you would be with those who are in the nursery, that they would find that that also is an opportunity to minister to the little ones. Help them with the difficulties that go along with being in the nursery. And let them see, Father God, the blessing that they are. And as your word goes forth this morning, Father, I ask that the words would be yours and not mine, and that we would be transformed into the image of your Son. In his name, amen. I, uh, I rarely intervene in any of the songs that are chosen. Um, we've got people who do that. And so when Sundays come, I'm always, you know, there's kind of an expectation. And I have noticed recently that there's many of the songs, a lot of the, the song choices have been so fitting for where God has us in the Word. And this morning, <clears throat> it's been a little bit of a, an emotional morning for me because I was standing at the mirror in the bedroom and, and I was struggling with the tie. And I was remembering my daddy. It was a little hard today. And for those of you who don't know, that's why I wear the tie. I don't care whether you... The only thing I care about about your appearance in church is that you, do clo- that you come clothed. That's, I really don't care. I wear the tie to honor my dad. There were two passions in his life. And you could flip-flop which one was the higher priority. Barbershop harmony and church music. Being in church to him was so incredibly important. Um, Every week we went through the same kind of routine, and, and there were times when I was little... It was like, come on, Dad, give it a rest. Because on Saturday nights, it was Lawrence Welk. (laughs) And all the shirts had to be ironed, all the socks had to be laid out, and everybody had to make sure that you had the right tie for the day. Because you went to to church, you had a nice shirt, nice trousers, and a tie. The ladies always had a nice dress that's, that's the way it was. That's the way my dad was. And his reason for that wasn't legalism. 
It was because he viewed this opportunity to come together as the body of Christ as a way of glorifying to him. You, you come to glorify God. And so in my dad's mind, you didn't, you didn't go there casually. That's just the way dad was. So don't ever think that because you're not here in a tie that I think less of you. You're here as the body of Christ. So as I stood there this morning and I'm trying, I still, it's still too long. Dang it. And when it's too long, it makes me look shorter. So, (laughs) ah, I started the day thinking about dad and about the importance of what we do on Sunday mornings. Church, wow, the body of Christ. So I greet you in the name of Jesus, brothers and sisters, body of Christ. It is so good to have you here today. The people of God gathered together. We're going to continue this morning in chapter 11 of Hebrews. But before we do that, to get there, we need to go through Romans 15. So I begin this morning in Romans chapter 15, verse 4, and Paul writes this, For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. There is a lot packed into that one verse. What I want us to get out of that this morning is that each And every word, every paragraph, every chapter and book found in Scripture are God's principal way of communicating to us. It's the way He has revealed Himself to us. Whatever was written in earlier times, He says, was written for our instruction. It means that Scripture was vital to the Christians in the first century. So when Paul wrote that and it went out to the churches, those people in the first century, they didn't have this book. But they did have some contact with what we would know as the Old Testament. It was vital for them to be connected to Scripture. And that's the same today. It's been vital for Christians at any time in history that we go to the Word, that we be people of the Word. We see this also when Paul was instructing Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. It's familiar to us. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped, For every good work. To the believers who first read those things from Paul in his letters, all scripture referred to the Old Testament. But that same understanding is true for us today. It isn't just the Old Testament, it's all Old Testament and New Testament. Every word is from God. And that verse in Romans 15 teaches us that the Bible has been given so believers would do what? Persevere and be encouraged. It's so easy for us to to get comfortable and, and feel like we don't have to do anything. This is a call for us to persevere. 
and to be encouraged in who we are in Christ. So this idea of perseverance and encouragement, but really the perseverance idea is connected with faith and obedience. If you are obedient in your faith, then you are persevering. 2 Thessalonians 1.4 says this, Therefore we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. Do you see how those all fit together? Perseverance and faith in the middle of persecution and affliction. I think sometimes we miss it because we think of our persecutions and we're totally consumed with how bad those persecutions are. And trust me, none of us in this room experience persecution along the lines of what those first century believers that read those messages, their persecution was to death. And there's believers all around the world, they are experiencing persecution. We don't experience persecution. What we experience is comfort. We are so comfortable that we don't persevere. Remaining faithful to the Lord in all circumstances is a clear proof of biblical faith. Now, I say that we, we have a problem of being comfortable. And every once in a while, something happens and we're not comfortable. I mean, I don't mean to embarrass anybody, but we had something really real happen real recently. A young wild man, I won't mention his name, took on a tree while skiing. Okay, I've taken a tree on also with a car. The tree won in my case, and the tree won with, with Nolan as well. And he, we get these calls, you know, and nobody knows exactly what's, what's going on, but I, I don't know how well he skis, but was he just kind of poking along? I probably doubt it. So the church gets this call, you know, this has happened to Nolan, this is going along, you know. That's a trial. Did, did that put you, I hate to pick on you this morning, but it's so real. It's so recent. It's real. It hurts. Do we persevere in that? So we start believing God for things. We start believing that he's not got a broken femur or something, you know? And the body of Christ steps up and somebody knows that mom's got to get there. And so, so the body of Christ comes to life and, and God is doing things and is moving. And, and instead of having to drive to Laramie, she gets flown to, to Laramie. That's incredible. That's the body of Christ. That's having faith in the middle of this terrible thing. He doesn't have a broken femur. He's not even got any broken bones. He's got to work on his relationship with his mom a little bit. But <laughs> remaining faithful in whatever happens in life, that's, that's proof of our, our spiritual life. That's proof of our biblical faith. And the Bible records story after story and full of information so that we can see this perseverance of faith. And this, this passage that we look at today at the end of chapter 11 begins with the people of Israel 
They're about to enter into the promised land. If you remember the story, Moses, Moses had come to that same place and he sent out 12 spies. They go into the promised land and they return and their intel was, was not good. The, the spies gave this terrible message of, of the people like giants, which was probably true in their eyes. And it was totally discouraging. However, the report from two of those spies was all about faith, trusting God. And Caleb and Joshua had a very different report. Think about Joshua and Caleb for a minute because there were 12 spies sent out. Ten of them came back and went, no way, man, this is just horrid. And they're going, no, our God is great enough. But Joshua and Caleb had to wander in the desert along with all of the nation of Israel. They just didn't die in the wilderness. They were men of faith. They were able to persevere. So they never gave up on the promises. The people murmured and complained and wanted to return to Egypt. And the Israelites turned from God and they looked to their own understanding of the circumstances, which is the equivalent of raising yourself up to be like God. And if you want to raise yourself up like God, look at um, what happened in, in uh, Isaiah 14 and in Ezekiel 28 to another creature that did that named Lucifer. So God was angered with the nation of Israel and their lack of faith and and, and their rebellion, and for 40 years, Israel wandered in the desert, and an entire generation died off. So now they've come to the edge of the promised land again. They know that God is in this whole thing, and they're going to take this land, right? And so that, once again, spies are sent out. They're sent out to get some tactical information about this first obstacle, which is the city of Jericho. Joshua's in command now. He's the leader. This is incredible. He's one of the original spies. He's persevered all the way through 40 years of, of this wandering, and now he's the leader, and he's, he's going to lead by faith. And that's where we start today in Hebrews 11, verse 30. He says, By faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. One of the... I, I, just, I think this should be a major motion picture. Jericho was a very highly fortified and strategic city. There's one archaeologist I read about this, this past week who describes Jericho as surrounded by an earth embankment. So there's this, this pile of dirt. That's Okay, we got that. And there's a stone retaining wall holding that in place. And that's 12 to 15 feet high. And then on top of that retaining wall, there was a mud brick wall six feet thick and 20 to six, 26 feet high. On up the embankment, there's another mud brick wall, very similar, the same size-ish. That means that if, if you're an Israelite, well, short guys like me, I would have been kind of average-ish for an Israelite guy at that time. Yay. <laughs> and you're going to wander around this city, and here's 46 feet 
42 feet, something like that. It depends on who you're talking to. So let's go with the, the short side, 42 feet. 42 feet of wall. That's what you're faced with. By the military standards of that time, the walls of Jericho were impenetrable. The other thing is that as the spies went into Jericho, they also learned that the people of Jericho Jericho knew a lot about Israel. They knew about the parting of the Red Sea. They knew they were coming. They were prepared. They had amassed weaponry. They had a plan. They knew that Israel was coming. And because of where Jericho was at strategically, they knew they were going to come to Jericho. So there's this really cool military plan for the nation of Israel, right? March around the city six times, uh, uh, every day. March around the city. What, is, what kind of military plan is that? And the Israelites are marching around looking at this walled city. Not a sound military plan. And even in that day, that's not how walled cities were taken. God's instructions include this really incredible faith thing. Then on the seventh day, you're to march around, and when the priests blow their horns and you shout, the walls will fall down. You don't have to go over and pull rocks out. You don't have to set up catapults. You don't have to do any of those military things that would have been common at the time. Just march and yell. (laughs) So on the seventh day, they did that. The result was that all of Israel... And all of Jericho knew how powerful God was. Massive, massive structure, and it crumbles into a heap. God did that. The reality is that God loves to destroy man's pride. He slew the pride of those in Jericho. Those people, they were, a, they were a wicked people. He also destroyed the pride and self-sufficiency of Israel. That must have been pretty embarrassing for the Israelites, you know. Yeah, there's a lot of them, but, you know, we're going to take Jericho, and to do that, you're just going to wander around. What? Because of that, only God could take credit for the walls being destroyed. The only thing that God required of Israel was faith. Trust that what God said would come to pass. You're going to go in and you're going to take the nation. And the first thing that you've got to do is take Jericho. And I'm going to do that for you. So all of Israel could only go, you know what? We're going to put our trust in God and see what He does. In the destruction of Jericho, there's also another incredible faith story, and it's the story of Rahab. Verse 31, by faith, Rahab the harlot did not perish along with those who were disobedient after she had welcomed the spies in peace. Rahab? Rahab, a a hero of the faith? She was a prostitute. Brothers and sisters, don't let anybody tell you that what that word actually means there. Uh, when, it's, when, it, when you talk about Rahab, that she was just a really um, good at, at welcoming people into her home. She was a prostitute. 
That's what it means. So we're going to be people of the word, and that's what it means. She's an example of faith. And by the way, she's also in the family tree, the lineage of Jesus. She was a Canaanite Gentile. She was not only just a Canaanite Gentile, but she was an Amorite, which was a race of people that God had marked for total destruction. Rahab was a woman of incredible faith and an an example of God's grace and mercy to all people. The inhabitants of, of Jericho were incredibly wicked. And in the middle of that, you have this, this prostitute who knows that, that God is, is real. The wickedness in this community was so great. They were known for their idolatry and wickedness. Their immorality, the, the records that we have, they were gross and cruel. There's good sources that say that they would sacrifice their babies, their infants, by placing a living infant into a clay jar and then incorporating that clay jar into the building of the walls of their cities and homes. Wickedness. Pagan. It's terrible. And in the middle of all of that, you have a black-hearted, wretched woman. I had to get that in there so Zach would be pleased. And this sinner, this pagan, this Canaanite, makes a faith confession. You find it in Joshua 2.11. She says, the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. She makes a confession of the one true God. A woman of faith. She hung a red cord out of her window. She made an agreement with the spies. The walls fall down. Israel comes in. All of Jericho is destroyed except for Rahab and her family. Awesome act of faith. Let's go on. Verse 32. And what more shall I say? For the time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, um, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, uh, David, of Samuel, and the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms and performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword from weakness, were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. And just like that passage begins... There isn't enough time. I mean, you, if, if you go through those, we could spend weeks on that one passage because of the stories that are involved there. Samson, Gideon, Samuel, and certain David, they're familiar. We, we have a familiarity in our Christianity and our belief because those stories come up. Barak and Jephthah, not so much. I don't want us to raise hands, but how many of you know about Barak? Okay, I got one here in the front, but I told you not to raise your hand. (laughs) Incredible stories of faith. The important thing here is these six men, in one fashion or another, if you go back through their stories, they were leaders of one 
shape or another. They, in one way or another, you would have to say they were leaders in the nation of Israel. And they are not prized, they are not praised, they are not built up because of, of what position they held or their accomplishments in those positions. What they are praised for in chapter 11 is their trusting God. Because in those stories, all of the adventures that they had, all of the great deeds that, that they represent were by faith. They are statements of faith, trusting God. We've talked about this for like three weeks, this whole idea of faith. And biblical faith, that would be faith that pleases God, is all about trusting completely in God's word, what he wants and what he says. Faith that pleases God has unqualified, complete confidence in what God says. And this kind of faith is based solely on the fact that God has spoken. Solely on the fact that He has spoken. So you completely trust God, the creator of the universe, simply because of what He said. The reality is a person either trusts what God says, or they trust their own voice. The voice of their intellect, instinct, and passions. We don't know tomorrow. You know, we kind of have an idea what's going to go on tomorrow, but the reality is we don't have any idea what, what's going to happen tomorrow. We don't know how the world was formed. We don't know how, even, even sometimes we don't even know how it stays together. We don't know how the world will end. And we don't know how all of the events that are going on in, in this thing we call the earth and humanity, we don't know how those things work together. We don't. God does. God knows everything possible to be known. Don't let that escape you. Everything that is possible to be known, God knows. And we either believe Him and trust what He says based on who He is, or we are deceived just like Eve and Adam in the garden. When we trust what God says, we act on His words. And the examples in chapter 11 show us that we believe that way, even if that means we risk everything. The faith that pleases God is not looking for a sign. Nation of Israel comes to Jericho and they see this walled city and they know they got to take it and God says march around it you know and, and and here's what I want you to do and and the nation of Israel didn't go okay well, we'll do that if you'll show us a sign of how the walls are going to come down they didn't do that and God would not have given them a sign. He did something greater. He just did it. Their act of faith wasn't based on what sign they would receive. It wasn't based on some miraculous vision of direction that came to, to Joshua. 
I sometimes think about Joshua, this poor guy. He's leading the nation of Israel, and, and he goes, Hey, I got a plan. I got it from God. We're going to march around the city. Oh, great. We've got a really good leader. Where's the military when we need it? I've said this to people many times. It would be so amazing and so nice to receive in the mail a fabulous gilded letter from God. Look at that return address. Number one, heaven. And it spells out exactly what we should do in life. It spells out exactly, exactly how we should perform at our jobs and our marriages and everything, you know, day by day. And it's, it's written in this incredible gold ink. But there wouldn't be any faith in that, would there? If we wait until we have all of the details, if we wait until we understand all the details so we can explain why we're going to do something and have proof it will be successful, even though those ways of being successful may not be understandable, we're actually living in doubt and we're deceived. If the Israelites had waited until they understood what was going to happen before they marched, they'd still be marching. Now, there's a little caveat here because sometimes God does give us explanations. Sometimes we do get a clear direction, but God is not obligated to give us any of that. He's not obligated to give you or I or any other believer any more than just himself. Isn't that good enough? The creator of the universe says, I am totally and completely accessible to you because of the sacrifice of Jesus. Isn't that enough? Where could we go with that? What could possibly happen to us that would be terrible and, and nasty? I have access with God. I have been adopted into his family. I am one of his. I have... Christ's righteousness imputed to me. What more do I need? Thomas, interesting disciple, he struggled to believe that Christ rose from the dead. So Jesus has risen from the dead and he appears with them and, and, and he shows Thomas the wounds in his body and he even invites Thomas to touch those wounds. Would that be wild? Thomas believed. His belief came after seeing Jesus, touching Jesus, and realizing that Jesus died and rose from the dead. Then Jesus said something to Thomas, but in a way it's not just to Thomas. In my thinking, it really has more to do with us. Because he says, Jesus, and this is John 20, 29, Jesus said to him, said to Thomas, because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. 
I do not have to see the wounds of Jesus to believe that he died on the cross. I do not have to put my hand into the wounds in his hands and and feet and his side to know that he was dead. I know that I know because he has spoken it. How do I know that he's risen from the dead? Same thing. We say this is God's word, that this is inerrant, that this is inspired by God. This is scripture. It says that he died and he rose from the dead. Good enough for me. God has given himself to us. This means that biblical God-pleasing faith is the opposite of human nature. Human nature wants what it can see and touch and understand. That's where we're at. Human nature, human reason is tied then also to the world system. And if you think about that, the world system is completely tied to Lucifer and is in opposition to God. So when God asks us to act by faith, we're going to act totally different than the world around us. You want an answer for why some believers in our day and age are being killed and persecuted for their faith? This is a big portion of why. Because we are so different. By nature. God says, believe in me. Trust my words simply because they are mine. God speaks. Yeah. Good. That's all I need. Let's go on in chapter 11 because there's more examples. Women received back their dead by resurrection and others were tortured, not accepting their release so that they might obtain a better resurrection. Ooh, there's power in that. And others experienced mockings and scourgings. Yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins, in goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, Men of whom the world was not worthy. Wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. Those are people of faith. Elijah brought a child back to life. Elisha also brought a woman's child back from the death. The women suffered when their children died. But God brought the children back to them. Amazing. But God doesn't always act through spectacular miracles. As a matter of fact, which is the greater miracle? That a young child would be raised from the dead, or all of us who believe in here this morning have eternal life? Which is the greater miracle? That you're brought back to life in this on this planet or that you've been given life for all of eternity? Well, I'm taking the eternity part. I don't know about you, but that, that should be one of those where we all just stand up and go, yeah, let's go. The greater miracle is that we are not destroyed by an all-seeing, all-knowing, just God. 
We deserve death. And he said, no, I will save you from your death. People of faith have been tortured, mocked, beaten, and imprisoned from the very beginning of Christianity and before. In our time, there are numerous stories of Christian brothers and sisters that are, that are being beheaded and treated in hideous ways. But have you also noticed that Christianity doesn't diminish? That's not a deterrent for Christianity. That's just a passage to home. It still hurts. The reason it doesn't diminish is because the people of God continue to have faith in God simply because He is God. Why? It says that. So that they might obtain a better resurrection. We believe in a glorious life after this one. God promises peace and joy and no pain in our life in Jesus, in God's presence. We have that looking, we, we get to look forward to that and it will come. So there's, there's this whole attitude inside of a, of a person of faith who's trusting God that says, put me to death. God has promised that He will raise me up in the last day and I will enjoy Him for all of eternity. That's what it means when it, when it says, obtain a better resurrection. We've got a better thing. We've got a better plan. It's all wrapped up in what Jesus has done for us. God-pleasing faith is simply trusting God is who He says He is. And that he will not go back on his word. Look at what's next in verse 39, chapter 11. And all these, meaning this list that he's given us in chapter 11, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Because God had provided something better for us. So that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. All of those Old Testament characters that exhibit this incredible faith that we read about in chapter 11 did not see it. It. What's it? The death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But that's where their faith was. And he says something better for us. What's the better for us? We look back at an event that has already occurred. We know that Jesus lived and died and rose from the dead. What a beautiful place to be. The promises for something better, something that will come. God-pleasing faith is what God has in the future for His people. God has provided already something better. In the Bible, we find examples of faith that brings, sometimes it brings an escape from suffering. We also find in the Bible faith that brings endurance in suffering. There isn't any way you can go, by having faith in Jesus, I avoid all troubles in my life. Sorry. Not going to happen. 
You also find in the Bible that there are all these people who, who persevered in their faith through horrid things. Job comes to mind. You can just go through character after character. The reality is that the Bible, the Bible gives us these examples of having great faith that does help us escape from suffering and helps us persevere in suffering. The reality is they're both the same kind of faith. It's the same kind of faith. Faith, this, this faith is in God. It's that God is infinitely better than what life can give to us. And it's also faith that means that whatever death can take from us isn't as good as what God has for us. Both. At the same time. If you had everything possible in this life, everything in this life is possible for you. God-pleasing faith says, God is better. God is greater. At the same time, if you lose everything that is possible to lose in this life, God-pleasing faith says, God is better. In both, he's better. God is better. He's greater. He is amazing, spectacular, loving, awesome, powerful. He's perfect. He's full of grace and love and mercy. He's always better. God-pleasing faith is totally and completely being in love with God. It, it kind of simplifies it just a little bit. The more you have this faith in God, you just loving. You just can't wait to be with Him. In love with every aspect of God's nature. There is then a tremendous challenge that we begin to see. We see it especially in the book of Hebrews. And it's a challenge for each of us individually. And it's, it's, a, it's a big challenge for First Baptist Church. And that challenge is to diligently, passionately spread the good news of Jesus. Isn't it? Along with that is, is the challenge to, to love Jesus more, to love God more. But in doing that, what, what we do, the, the actual working that out, is telling people about who Jesus is. To develop an eagerness and passion for God that defies death. There are places in the world right now where brothers and sisters are doing that they have faith enough and it just overwhelms them and they tell others about their faith in Jesus Christ and they are beheaded. Their faith still defies death. What a witness. So the challenge for us as, as God's people and as a church, as, as FBC, is, is to have that passion for God in such a way that we just we can't contain it. Sunday service, preaching, singing, giving, fellowship, all of what we call worship is to cultivate this passion for God. 
I mean, if you're just coming for entertainment, you know, we got a fabulous bass player right now. Thank you, Joe, man. Woo-hoo. What a good bass player, man. And we got a, wow, yeah. Could you hear the piano this morning? Whoa. Okay. I'm, I'm not leaving Randy out or the drummer out, but okay. If you're only here for the entertainment, we can find some better musicians to go pay money to listen to. We're not here for entertainment. We're here to glorify God. We're here to build one another up. We're here to get excited about the things of God's kingdom in such a way that tomorrow, when we're not in this kind of setting, everybody goes, what in the world is about you? It's a challenge. Sunday school, Bible studies, small groups, prayer meetings, mission trips, all are to bring glory to God and passion for Him. Passion that is not afraid of persecution, opposition, or even death. Our passion for God is greater than our comfort. It's greater than our misery. It's greater than our poverty or greater than our wealth. It's greater than our popularity and it's even greater than our rejection. Our passion, our faith in God is better than life. Is that how we live? That's a challenge. So this morning I want to I say by faith, FBC, meaning the body of Christ that identifies, this is, this is who we are, by faith that F- FBC will preach the word, tell others of God's glory, love one another as God has loved us, encourage one another, teach one another, Serve one another. As people of the word, people of faith, people with God-pleasing faith, we will spend our lives worshiping the only one worthy of worship. That's something that goes on every day, every moment of every day for a believer. And who is that one worthy? The one true God, creator of the universe. Master. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, come and teach us. Stir us up to be your hands and feet wherever we go. Help us to see past our comfort and our earthly pursuits that our passion would be for you. I ask, Father God, that you'd help us to put aside those selfish, prideful things that keep us from loving your people. Those things that keep us from loving those that desperately need to be rescued. I need Jesus. Use us. By an act of our faith, we just put our trust in you that you will use us to speak the words of the gospel, to love people and encourage people 
that aren't in Christ right now. They're dead. Use us to bring them to life. Life in you. Help us, Father God, with our comfort that we wouldn't center our decision-making and everything that we do around whether we're comfortable or not. And Holy Spirit, I ask that you would place in our paths people that you have prepared to hear the gospel. Ignite in us a fire for the things of your kingdom. Ignite in us a fire to believe that you are who you say you are and nothing else comes close to mattering. You're the one. Thank you. Thank you that you meet us where we're at and that you will work in us and through us. Oh God, be glorified in your people. in agreement with your son. Amen.